Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Thank you for tuning in to Legitimate on Phoenix Business Radio X, sponsored by AZ Credit Law Group and hosted by consumer credit attorney Rochelle Poulton. You may notice I don't sound like Rochelle. She's feeling a bit under the weather this week. I'm her husband, Mike Poulton, and I have the honor of filling in as her guest host. Not to worry, though, I am an attorney, too, so we will be keeping things just as legitimately legitimate as usual. We have two excellent guests to discuss the world of student loans. Here in the studio today is Bobby Zavala, Senior Director of Life Admission at the University of Dubuque, Tempe, a regionally accredited nonprofit university that has the notable alumnus, actor Tony Danza. Also with us today is Diane Drain, owner and and bankruptcy attorney at the law office of D.L. Drain. She's been practicing bankruptcy law for 30 years. She founded the Arizona Consumer Bankruptcy Council and has taught numerous continuing legal education classes to bankruptcy attorneys throughout her career. Bobby, why don't you tell us more about yourself and the University of Dubuque? You bet. Thank you, sir. Thank you, folks, for listening. Uh, Thanks for having me today. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I come to the University of Dubuque from a law enforcement background. Um, I was a deputy sheriff for 10 years, and prior to being a deputy sheriff, I was in the military. I was active duty Army for 22 years. And prior to that, I was an Arizona native. I come from a small town of Bisbee, Arizona, uh, which is, you know, about uh, four, four hours south of here. I am incredibly blessed to be in a position right now as the senior director of life admissions for the University of Dubuque here in Tempe, private nonprofit Christian university, which is approximately about uh, seven minutes from where we're seated right now. So that's that's it in a, in a, in a quick, brief nutshell. Excellent. Well, we're very glad to have you here today. Thank you for coming. Thank you, sir. And Diane, it's your turn. Why don't you tell us about you and the Arizona Consumer Bankruptcy Council? All right. And again, thank you for inviting me. Um, I am a law, prof- a retired law professor now, and uh, a, also a uh, practicing bankruptcy attorney since 1985. My focus has always been consumer education, whether it's the community or whether it's fellow lawyers, um, whether I'm using my website to help with that education or I'm speaking uh, or writing. Uh, that has really been my commitment is making sure people understand their rights and the consequences of some of their actions. Part and parcel to that was establishing the Arizona Consumer Bankruptcy Council, what we're calling the ACBC. What I realized in 05, and uh, I also had another uh, attorney who helped me set that up. His name is Gary Stickle. Uh, what we realized was that uh, the law had changed dealing with bankruptcy so dramatically that we really needed a way to mentor fellow attorneys. Uh, so we range from membership anywhere from 60 to 100 and very active listserv, uh, helping each other learn the new laws or perhaps deal with difficult clients or difficult attorneys, or we also are an outreach for other stakeholders like the bankruptcy court, uh, the judges, and the U.S. trustee Department of Justice uh, folks, so that we help them understand what's going on in the consumer world, which is very different from the commercial world, that's the larger bankruptcies. Well, that is very important work, and we're glad to have you here today. So thank you for coming. Thank you. Our topic today is student loan debt. That's what we're here to discuss. And before we get started on the conversation, let's throw out some statistics here for the audience so they understand what we're talking about. 
the the United States has over one point five trillion dollars in outstanding student loan debt. That's debt that's owed by U.S. Uh, citizens and residents here in the country for education that they've received. And student loan debt increases by almost $3,000 per second. That's $9.6 million per hour of new student loan debt that's being accrued in this country. It's the second highest category of debt in the United States behind home mortgages. Mm-hmm. There are an estimated 44.2 million student loan borrowers, and 11.2% of them are in default on their student loans. That means almost the entire population of Phoenix, if you were to put them all in one place, that's how many people, the whole metro area of Phoenix, that's how many people are currently in default on student loans in this country. And that's why this is a topic of discussion for this podcast. So to start off, uh, let's talk about why people are incurring this debt. Bobby, why is it so important to have a bachelor's degree? What's the what's the importance of higher education these days? Well, Mike, you know, the thing about education um, and the, the fact of the matter is, uh, and we were having a conversation earlier, many folks reach a glass ceiling, if you will, uh, whether they're professionals, uh, mid-management, um, and they get to a point where they've been on their job five, six, seven years, uh, and they're trying to move up. They're trying to go forward in their position However, they they lack a bachelor's degree, and one of the one of the most common degrees that we are and we have one in our university also is a business degree, because it's such a broad degree it can it can be it can be used in so many different aspects. But the simple fact of the matter is is that when you're looking at moving up in a corporation in a company, whether it be your own company or you want to make yourself more marketable, society says that you have to have some type of degree. Um, and so when you start looking at people why why they're pursuing their higher education. A lot of it is is personal. Where we deal with our universities, we have adult learners who are 23 years and above. And they have, again, they've reached a certain plateau in their career where they, for whatever reason, life got in the way and they did not graduate. They might have started school, whether it be at the U of A or ASU or NAU, they started, but life got in the way and they, they took a break. It might have been a five-year break or a 10-year break. But they know that they have to get back in school and they have to uh, they have to graduate. So you see a lot of folks um, that are reaching their 20s or 30s and their 40s and they're realizing I, I need to get my degree knocked out. Um, to include myself, I was 50 years old when I got my bachelor's degree. So there's a lot of folks that, again, going back to what I was saying is they they've reached a certain time in their career and they realize I have to get this degree knocked out to move forward. Is that a change from years past? Has there been a shift in the way degrees are viewed by employers and the job market in general? You know, it's, it's and this is my opinion, I, I believe that uh, we're kind of having a shift in, in different uh, perspectives. Uh, and what I mean by that is a lot of the uh, trade jobs, if you will, the plumbers, the electricians, the carpenters, the welders, the mechanics, uh, we see a, a high increase in, of recruiting for those type of positions because simply um, we lack that in our in our country. We lack the, the trades jobs, if you will. If you look at public education, a lot of the uh, public schools are losing those type of metal shops and auto shops and woodworking shops. So in, in turn, we're losing individuals that carry that 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 passion if you will later on in their lives now that's part of it the other part is i think if people are realizing when they're older they've done 
other jobs. They've done retail, perhaps, or they've done food service, perhaps, or they've done, um, there's so many, you know, a slew of different jobs. But they've gotten to a point, again, what I was saying earlier, is they've gotten to a point in possibly their 30s or 40s or maybe even their 50s, and they realized, I would truly like to own my own business someday, or I would like to move up in this business so they have they understand that, hey, I have to get that diploma. I have to get that bachelor's degree. So I think it's kind of a dual-edged sword, if you will. You know, we're looking at the trades, if you will, uh, and we're, we're lacking a lot of folks in those jobs. But we're also seeing a high increase of adult students that, again, for whatever reason, never graduated when they started. And now they're realizing, okay, I'm 45 years old now. I probably should get my degree. Mm-hmm. So. Now, Diane, in 30 years of consumer bankruptcy practice, you've interacted with a very broad cross-section of the population, I would think. Yes. Um, Have you seen any shift over that time in the motives for people seeking higher education? I don't believe so. Historically, with those moving into the professional careers, uh, it's one of two. Uh, It's either money or it's reputation. Well, I guess there's a third one in there, and that's doing good. Uh, Of course, that's my favorite. Uh, The money side of it, truthfully, they're not going to make the money that their parents or their grandparents made in that profession. That's just gone. Uh, Whereas the reputation, uh, having some extra uh, letters after your name uh, in their mind makes them feel good. But I think it's the third one. I think that's doing good. And so... Hopefully, people realize the the importance of getting a degree, using that properly to benefit their community, and henceforth benefit benefit themselves and their family. You mentioned people going to professional schools and getting advanced degrees. We're going to be talking a lot about the financial impact that that type of extended education has on somebody. Why don't you, if you can, just uh, summarize for the audience what the typical educational requirements are for people going into professional fields like uh, medicine and law, for example. Okay. What's entailed in that? Well, certainly you've got you've got to start off with your undergrad. So that's whatever number of years it took you to get your particular degree. Law school is three years. Medical school is seven years, typically. If you want to add to that, like an expert in tax uh, and law, that's another two years, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So in the world of building a professional reputation, you've got a serious commitment in education to even get started. And the schools, at least I can only speak to the law schools, don't teach you how to practice law. They teach you how to find the library. And therefore, you've got 10 more years of learning how to practice law once you get out of law school. And if you've got good mentors, then that learning will be seamless And if you don't have good mentors, you're going to practice on your clients. (laughs) That's a a great way to summarize it. And I think we may, with the trends in increasing graduation rates of attorneys, we may see more people practicing on their clients. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You mentioned the seven years for med school. Um, That type of a course ends up including very low pay work afterwards. You've got the four years of medical school following four years of undergraduate, and then beyond that, you're expected to work for several years, potentially quite a few more years, depending Mm -hmm. on your specialty area, with really minimal compensation. 
Um, certainly not much compensation compared to the amount of money you have to spend on tuition to get there. That's true. Um, do you see doctors today um, reaching the same sort of socioeconomic status that they did in generations past? I think none of us, if we look back to the 50s and see where the profession was at that time, none of us are going to see that today. It doesn't matter what the profession is. Yeah. Technology has changed it dramatically. Uh, and certainly how our clients or patients seek advice, whether medical advice or legal advice. Uh, so things are very different today than they were you know, 40 years ago. And certainly the business dynamics of healthcare in this country, Definitely. as well as the practice of law, have changed substantially. Yeah. Um, I know many young doctors, and as you mentioned, none of them are achieving the same level of financial success that people in past generations did. Uh, I myself am uh, fairly early in my legal career. I graduated in 2011 from ASU, uh, College of Law, and certainly uh, my classmates are struggling as well to maintain mm-hmm. the level of career advancement and compensation that people even 15 or 20 years ago could routinely expect. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, from a business standpoint, what what trends do both of you see? And, and I'll go with you first on this one, Bobby. Sure. What do you see happening with tuition and the cost of education just on a per semester or per year basis? Prior to coming to this position that I have now, Um, I did my research on a lot of different programs, a lot of different uh, schools, if you will. And the Phoenix Valley, uh, the Valley of the Sun, we've been inundated with so many different schools. You know, some schools have come, some schools have gone, um, and they've left a lot of students holding the bag, if you will. That's unfortunate. Uh, What I try to tell students when when I'm coaching and I'm mentoring students, potential students, is first and foremost... Where are you in life right now? You know, where are you? Are, are you, and, and Diane mentioned a word that was so crucial. It's commitment. As we know, when you start looking at graduate degrees and, and so on, you're looking at a commitment of time. You're looking at commitment of finances. Your family's making a commitment because as we know, when, when we're going to school, so are our kids and so are our wives and so are our husbands because <laughs> we're normally secluded in a back bedroom somewhere and we're reading and we're studying and leave me alone. Don't talk to me for the next six hours so I can do my homework. So, you know, they're all going to school with us. So it's a commitment level. Um, one of the things that I truly uh, and, and my staff as well try to tell students, potential students, is borrow responsibly. I think right now we have gotten, uh, we being America, have gotten so comfortable with borrowing money, comfortable with, well, I'll take a student loan or I'll take this loan or I'll take this grant or whatever the case may be. Um, I come from a generation or my father was instilled, instilled this behavior in me. Uh, and it's difficult. I, I understand it's difficult, especially in education. My father always taught me if you can't afford to pay for it, you don't need it, you know. Now, granted, that doesn't always, you know, fit the bill in education because you have to pay up front off. We got that. But I'm a firm believer that if classes are, I'm just going to throw a dollar amount out there, say $10,000, don't borrow $50,000 and go buy yourself a new car. Borrow $10,000, pay for your classes. Now you got forty grand for the next, you know. So I see a lot of people that have, uh, again, our, our university targets older students. And some of the students that I've talked to, um, have practiced uh, 
less than frugal borrowing. So now they're at a point in their life where they're like, I shouldn't have borrowed that money when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And I agree with them. So you see a spike in that. Um, I've seen where people are trying to, at, at least the individuals that I've seen, borrow less money because they see this is a huge debt. It's, as you mentioned, you know, billions and millions of dollars across the United States. And there's so many people that are in default. So I see people trying to, we used to call it the work and save, the was program, work and save. You'll work, you do your job during the day, you save your couple of thousand dollars and you take a semester of school. You know, does it prolong your graduation date? Of course it does. But when you graduate, do you owe $50,000? Hopefully not. You know, so that's mm-hmm. that's kind of what I've seen, just me personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot more folks trying to be savvy on, on, their, um, on their borrowing and not be so easy to borrow ten or $20,000. So. I've seen recently a, a source indicated that tuition costs in the United States have increased every single semester since the 1980s and perhaps even as far back as the 70s. It's been an absolutely consistent trend uh, throughout my entire life and perhaps well beyond that. Diane, have you seen changes in uh, your clients' financial issues and concerns and sort of the the ratios of their debts as a result of the changes in tuition over the years? As a result of tuition, not often, uh, truthfully. Um, and, and I did look at some statistics. Uh, certainly, college costs have increased 500% since 1985. <laughs> wow. And, um, you know, that compares with cost of living 121% and the increased cost of medical expense of 285%. So it's that sort of differential that how we've seen the disproportionate increase exactly. of education compared to other costs of living that I'm wondering about, if that's shifted people's finances in a way that shows up in your practice? To look at my common uh, client, yes, they have student loans, but they come in knowing the student loans are probably not dischargeable, don't Mm -hmm. go away in bankruptcy. And so we're dealing with their credit cards, their medical bills, et cetera. Um, I I would have to say percentage-wise, the number of my clients, my consumer clients that have student loans is probably only about a quarter which I really? find unusual. I, I would have thought that many more, but then I also uh, represent a lot of senior citizens. Okay. But they too have student loans. Right. So That's an interesting topic. Hopefully we'll have a little bit more time later and we can talk about student loans in the aging population right. and right. what influence that's going to have over people's lifetime. Been a lot of talk in the media and uh, in professional circles about schools overpromising and under delivering unemployment opportunities. In other words, enticing people to take out a lot of loans to get an education with a promise that it will help their careers, and then perhaps it doesn't help their careers. Right. Bobby, what what do you see? You're you're on the educational side of this, uh, and I I know I've heard before our before our appearance today that your university is really working hard to avoid that problem. Correct. Uh, What steps do you take and what steps do you think other institutions need to take to prevent people from perhaps being misled into taking on debt that's not helpful? Exactly. Um, And that's huge. I completely agree. You know, you you hear, you see of individuals, um, schools that have come to the Valley, come, you know, to different states and and they promise, uh, you know, we're going to get a 90 percent employment rate when you when you graduate. 
The fact of the matter is, is I, I, I don't see how that can happen because, you know, you don't know how the economy is going to react. You don't know how, how companies are going to react. So, you know, that's already uh, an issue uh, at, at hand. What we try to do with each and every student that comes to the University of Dubuque is we tell them, again, I go back to what I, was, what I said earlier. Where are you in life right now? What company are you in? Where are you as far as in that company? Are you middle management? Are you, where, where, what are your goals and what are your aspirations? And we tell them up front. I said, this diploma that you're going to graduate from, whether it be a bachelor's in business or marketing or accounting, criminal justice, this is going to help you. It's going to be a tool in your toolbox. It's not going to be the toolbox. And, and I think it comes from the onset and from the beginning when you're talking to a student or talking to a client. Mm-hmm. If you tell them upfront right away, this is not the secret pill, if you will, that's going to make mm-hmm. you successful. And, I, and I'm very fortunate because all of the students that come through the University of Dubuque here in Tempe, I get to sit down with them just like you, eyeball to eyeball, knee to knee, and say, hey, where are you in life? Mm-hmm. What do you want to do? You know, how soon do you want to graduate? You know, how is this going to help you? And if you think about it, and this is where I think a lot of institutions of higher learning that are for-profit – have lost the the uh, reality of that we're in a life-changing business. When you change somebody's educational career, if you will, you change the trajectory of their life. Mm-hmm. And and I think people forget that. And I think in profit schools, and God bless them, I, I'm not here to speak ill of profit schools, but there's a huge difference because when there's a profit to be made, what becomes more important me as a student or me as my debit card. So yes. you know, I, I tried to tell people, you know, focus on where you're at and look at where you're at. So I, if that answers the question. It does. And you mentioned the for-profit schools. I've got a statistic here. About 40% of all the for-profit campuses uh, in, I, I don't know if this is an Arizona statistic or nationally, but about 40% have closed since 2010. So in the last nine That's years, probably national. That, that may well be a national statistic. I, I didn't make that note, but uh, that is a remarkable shift in the industry, I would think. Truly, truly um, do you see that that is uh, changing your admissions process or, or the prospects um, that universities like yours, nonprofit, more traditional uh, universities, are seeing different students coming to them as a result of the change in the for-profit market? Yes, without a doubt. Um, I, I just recently had a conversation with the young lady who is – and young lady, I mean 62, great young lady, <laughs> phenomenal student. And she was like me. She was a, took a class here, took a class there, and she want, wanted to graduate uh, finally. But she had gone through one of the local universities, uh, for-profit universities – and she paid an ungodly amount of money and still was not able to graduate. So we do see a lot of people that are uh, at a point in their life where they've gone the traditional route and they've paid the high the high tuition. Mm-hmm. And again, life gets in the way. You know, I wish we had the ability to say, okay, mom, dad, I'm going to take the next four years off and don't nobody bother me. Don't nobody talk to me. I'm just going to focus on school. But that's not reality. We get sick. We get married. We have kids. We lose a job. We gain a job. And that's life, you know. So I do see, uh, as you were saying, individuals who have uh, gone a tradition around spend uh, an incredible amount of money and finances and haven't been able to graduate. So we do see a lot of those students coming back. And they're like, we like the fact that it's a nonprofit university. We like the fact that it's a faith-based university. We'll tell the students right up front. This is about you 
It's not about me. It's not about the university. It's about you and how we can make you uh, make your voyage for the next year, year and a half, two. It depends on how they come in with how many credits they come in. The, a voyage can take a year and a half. It could take four years. They can come in with zero credits. But it's how, how they get there uh, and ultimately walk across that stage, earn that diploma, and God willing, they you know move up in their company or or might even be just for their own betterment and their own happiness mm-hmm. that they just finally graduated. So absolutely. Yeah. Now, Diane, Bobby mentioned people who may have attempted to graduate from a for-profit university but weren't able to complete that, right. despite spending a whole bunch of money borrowing right. it on student loans. Um, with many of those universities closing, huge percentage of them, what influence does that have? on their financial status. Uh, are these people who come to you as potential clients at that point? Not as potential. Well, it could be potential clients. I have had some lawyers and judges and such as clients, but as fellow people, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that I, I'm uh, involved in the profession, what happens to a student who does not yet have their degree, but the school closes, is that student is now left with a a lot of debt, B, credits that probably are not transferable, uh, or if they are transferable, it's not to fill in what the next school is going to want. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're left stranded. And, and this doesn't, it's not just a professional school. It could be a truck driving school, et cetera. Mm-hmm. These folks are left stranded. And if mm-hmm. when you start peeling back and you go through all the lawsuits that come out of all of this, what you will find is that the school started off with a decent focus on quality. And somewhere in there, the bean counters got involved and the money profiteers got involved and they realized students second, money first. Right. Yes. And so they started offering underwater basket weaving to mm-hmm. truck drivers and, and classes like that, charging them horrendous fees, but telling them they had to take it in order to qualify for the degree they were going to get. And then, of course, the school never close or never gives them the degree uh, and they try and move on to other schools and they don't qualify there to come in and they almost have to start all over again at that new university. Uh, and so true. these folks are left with millions and millions of dollars overall, well, billions now mm-hmm. in, um, uh, in defaulted loans. They can't afford to pay. They don't have the, the job that they were promised they were going to get. And, and that whole job thing, I promise right. we have a 90% higher rate out of our school. The moment you hear that, that's a scam. <laughs> Run screaming. Oh, yeah. You know, I was involved with a school that I finally figured out behind the doors. They were hiring their own students back again yes. so that they could tell ABA, that's the American Bar Association, that they had X percent higher rate. No, they didn't. They were hiring <laughs> those students themselves. So you have to use common sense as a student in borrowing money. Just like Bobby was saying, you don't borrow 50000 to pay a $10,000 tuition and then go buy a car. But as far as trusting your school, I don't even trust the nonprofit schools anymore, to tell you the truth. I'm going to trust myself. Yeah. yeah. Can, I, can I caveat to yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that I, we always tell people, and, and I agree 100%, we as consumers, if you think about it, we're consuming an education. So we as mm-hmm. consumers, we all have a smartphone. We all have an apparatus or a device that, that's seconds away from us. I tell people, do your research. One of the things that drives me just bananas, if I had any hair, I'd pull my hair out, I'll tell you. (laughs) It just drives me crazy is people become sun devils because they're, not that I'm dogging on the sun devils, (laughs) but people become sun devils because my dad was a sun devil or people become wildcats because my dad was a wildcat. 
and they do no research. They have no idea why they're going there. They're just going to go there because it's a family tradition or right. whatever the case may be. I tell people, do your research. Look at the school. Where's that school from? Where's that? School? Look at their beliefs. Look at the mission statement of that school. You know, if the mission statement in that school, it, it, 90% of them it, it says so much about that university. Um, and it's unfortunate that a lot of students, younger students, maybe not, you know, the, the students that uh, Diane and I deal with or the clients that Diane and I deal with, we're very fortunate that they're older in age and they're a bit wiser. I like to think that I'm a bit wiser now. Uh, probably not. I think my kids would disagree. But I think that when they're younger, they just go to a school just just to go to that school and they don't make and they don't do any research. So, you know, if anyone listens to this, I would tell you guys that are listening, do your research on the school. Look at it, figure out where they're from, figure out where they're where they're at, and more importantly, figure out where they're going. Right. Because and that's huge. Another note on that, the hiring. Mm-hmm. Uh it you know, if I was hiring somebody, I'm gonna look to the school and the quality of the school, the reputation the school has. And if I have two applicants in front of me, I'm gonna take the one that has a better uh, school reputation, even if their grades are ever so slightly lower than the other, uh, because I know the quality of the education from that school is going to be higher than uh, the other. So your school that you choose directly reflects your ability to get a job. Certainly. And I would even stress that further. Uh, Picking the right school is advantageous. Picking the wrong school can absolutely disqualify you. Um, I I hire people at both professional and non-professional levels. There are schools which will get your resume shredded immediately. I don't even consider applicants from certain institutions because the very fact that you chose to go there indicates that you have bad judgment. Um, If the entire first page of Google results when you search that school's (laughs) name is about how it's a pyramid scheme and a scam and all the lawsuits filed against it, uh, that indicates to me that you have poor decision-making right. skills and you didn't do your research. Well, but in uh, their defense, <laughs> you know, people just don't know they should check this stuff out before they make those decisions. Apparently not. Yeah. It is interesting. Sure. Now, Diane, what options do people have, if any, if they pay a whole bunch of money for a for-profit uh, degree and then the school closes before they graduate? Okay. Well, we actually do have some loan forgiveness programs available, federal programs, uh, where students can apply for a refund or a forgiveness of those loans. I, don't, I shouldn't have used the word refund. I'm sure they don't get back <laughs> money, but a forgiveness of the loan or a portion of that loan. And it ends up having to go through litigation. Uh, we have class action lawsuits that have gone on now for at least four or five years that I've been wander, watching them. Uh, and is there a return of 100%? I doubt it, but I don't have any statistics to say what those numbers would be. Of course, meanwhile, the students still have the loans and are still being contacted by the, the debt collection company mm-hmm. asking for their, their money. Uh, what about discharge in bankruptcy? Okay, in bankruptcy. So, Uh, The bankruptcy laws are a character of social norms at the time. So (laughs) we had many years ago the ability to discharge older student loans, student loans you'd been paying on for a while. Obviously, your life changed around. You couldn't do whatever it was you thought you were going to do. And so we could discharge student loans. Um, And then in 05, we had a dramatic change. 97, we had a change. 85, we had a dramatic change in what could be discharged as far as student loans. 
today the common knowledge or understanding is student loans cannot be discharged in bankruptcy. But that's a big statement and not necessarily accurate. Um, what I first place I tell people you got to break them into two groups. One would be the non would be the uh, private student loans. The second would be the federal. Now about ninety percent of all the loans out there are federal loans, with the others being um, uh, private. And I got numbers, but I won't bore you with that. That's about um, a, a ninety ten ratio. You were saying? I, I, I believe so. I wow. do have actual numbers, but that's that's, that's kind of where we're at. So federal, federal loans being federal government, they've got a whole bunch of programs. Uh, Some are mismanaged, some are properly managed, but what they're looking at there is um, if things have happened to that person or to the school, then let's figure out how to deal with either the school by all of these programs that we have to forgive, you know, closed student loan debt, or the person. So, in bankruptcy, what most all of our, at least our Arizona judges, and you should understand bankruptcy is federal law. So it's the same law in New York as it is California, but it's interpreted different throughout the states. So uh, we could have a case with identical facts come out in New York and then also out of Arizona or California, and the results are completely opposite. So just because someone says to you, the law says you can do X and Y doesn't mean that that's what you're going to end up finding in the court that you go into. It's the classic attorney caveat. Exactly. <laughs> yes, but. Yes, but. Or just, it depends. It depends. I can't uh, even answer that. Go. It depends. <laughs> you must be a lawyer. Yes. Um, so anyway, as to bankruptcy, uh, there is a test called the Bruner test that looks at specifics for that individual. It has to do with their ability to pay back their intent. Have they actually worked at paying back the loan? And is their, uh, their financial, their personal situation so dramatic that they're never going to be at a point in their lives where they can afford to pay back all or even a portion of those loans? Um, so there's three different tests. Uh, and what we do is we have to look at an individual's unique situation as applied to those tests, but with the caveat that, depending on if we get Judge A, he looks at this, Judge B looks at this. Well, I start people first with, when it's a federal loan, have you gone through all of the administrative processes that are available through the federal loan programs? Um, Now, we've got a bunch of problems running on there with the servicers for the federal loans, et cetera, but I'm just saying on a generic standpoint, have you gone through the administrative processes? Because I guarantee, at least our Arizona judges, the first question out of their mouth is going to be, did you apply for all the hardship, et cetera, programs that are available? Bankruptcy then does apply that Bruner loan, te- uh, Bruner uh, student loan test, and looking at now you've tried all the things you can. Uh, you're obviously never going to be able to pay back these loans. So the judges will say, "Well, the whole reason bankruptcy was developed was to give people a fresh start. So now let's not only get rid of their credit cards, their medical bills, but also either all or at least a portion of their student loan." So it can happen, but. It's a separate lawsuit within the bankruptcy. So people file bankruptcy listing their student loans and then they get their discharge and they think, yay, they're all gone. And they don't realize, no, that that's a separate process you have to go. Very interesting. It is, uh, I think, safe to say a complicated mess. Is that a fair summary? It is a complicated (laughs) mess. And only a few lawyers will actually do that area of law because it's so built on what ifs and who's going to pay the bill. 
Yes, mm. it's pretty speculative. You can go through all the work and then exactly. not end up getting the relief mm. at the end. And here you have a mother of seven living in a mobile home uh, in, on the Indian reservation, and she's looking to discharge her student loans. Who's going to pay the bill? Yes. It's a challenging problem. That's something I run into in my practice also. Many people who have possible avenues of legal relief for mm -hmm. a real problem in their lives, but it just doesn't add up economically to pursue it. Mm -hmm. There's just no good way to make that happen. Can, can I put in a brief Absolutely. little ad here? Yes. Uh, I started the self-help center at the bankruptcy court. So if you go online to ArizonaBankruptcyCourt.com uh, .gov. No, just go with Google and type in Arizona Bankruptcy Court, <laughs> and you will see a uh, an area that you can look at to talk with for free uh, some of our volunteer attorneys. Not they're take they're not taking your case; they're giving you legal advice. And we do have seventy volunteer attorneys throughout Arizona who come in and do adversaries, which is that little separate <clears throat> mini lawsuit I talked about. That is a great service and a great resource for people. Can you? Um Tell them again what they should be looking for to get in touch. You either can just go online to Arizona Bankruptcy Court, you know, do a Google search, or it's azb.uscourts, plural, .gov, and then the homepage will open and you can go to filing without an attorney. Even though you may already have filed your bankruptcy, you just need help with uh, the student loan. So let's talk a little bit about paying off student loans. Mm -hmm. You know, we've been talking about borrowing the money in the first place and getting the education. Uh, the average interest rates on student loans are typically between 45 and 7%. So uh, higher than mortgages, similar to car payments, mm -hmm. uh, lower than credit cards. But these are not, um, not the most advantageous loan terms necessarily compared to some other things. And the average person is paying $393 a month on their student loans. Uh, in Arizona, that monthly payment is over 8% of the average household income, and if both people have student loans, it's nearly 19% of the average household income. Um, Bobby, you talked a little bit about some of the advising services, you could say, that, that your university provides to your students. Can you tell us a little about what the University of Dubuque does to help students plan for payback of their student loans? Um, you know, it starts off with the young student or the student coming into our program. Uh, first, we talk about, again, where are you in life and how much student uh, debt have you have accrued already? Um, and then we, again, advise them to borrow responsibly. If you, if you have to borrow, then you have to, but we prefer they didn't. Um, I go, I'll go back to saying if you can, as a student, if you can find an employer – who offers, uh, for example, tuition reimbursement, you know, I would highly recommend that they take advantage of that. You know, go through your employer. It might only be $3,500 a year, but that's still $3,500 less than you're paying for and you're having to pay back. Does your university have relationships with employers that do that? Is we that do. As a matter of fact, and this is one of the things about the Phoenix Valley is it's been very open-armed um, and we're building on a, on a weekly basis, on a daily basis with different different businesses that, uh, uh, you know, different uh, state agencies, city agencies. Um, I come from a criminal justice background, from a law enforcement background. A lot of the uh, law enforcement uh, agencies in the Valley offer uh, tuition reimbursement for their officers, uh, the sheriff's office for their deputies, things of that nature. So we advise them to try, try that route first. Then uh, we don't per se offer any kind of uh, budget counseling or things of that nature, but we will sit down with them and we'll have a frank conversation with them. We'll tell them, 
you know, you're at a point in your life, and it kind of goes back to what Diane said earlier. We were talking about the word commitment. You made a commitment to graduate. You made a commitment to obtain your degree. So what is it that you can do to maintain on that commitment? Is your commitment to your education where you're going to spend, you know, a couple of thousand dollars? Uh, or is your commitment to perhaps spending more money at Starbucks? Not that Starbucks is bad and I'm not <laughs> plugging on Starbucks, but you know, where can you trim some of the fat? Where can you look at your own budget and say, Hey, I might not need that new pair of shoes or I might not need that new blazer. Instead, I'll keep the same old black blazer that I've been wearing for the last six months and I won't buy a new one. So we can start helping them. And most of the students that we deal with are at that point in their life where they realize, hey, it's time for me to get serious. We don't do any poking of the eyes, if you will. Uh, we just sit down with them and we're like, hey, this is time that you budget your money accordingly. Um, and focus on what you want to do. We had talked earlier about schools providing unrealistic employment prospects, yes. and, and Diane mentioned schools pushing underwater basket weaving to truck <laughs> drivers. Uh, is part of this just a need for realistic communication of uh, future expectations to students uh, on the part of universities rather than blowing smoke at them and, and showing them uh, all the rainbows they're going to find at the end of the the right. Their journey. Right. Well, you know, and I agree 100 percent with with what we were talking about earlier is there's a there's a distinct difference when you look at a profit and nonprofit school. And there's a distinct difference when you sit down with somebody and they can chart a course for you and say, hey, in order for you to obtain your bachelor's degree, you need, say, 18 classes. And these 18 classes are in business, not underwater basket weaving or not, <laughs> right. you know, uh, horticulture or something like that, because granted – you have to have your general, you know, your general education requirements. We got that. You have to take the math. You have to take the bio. You have to take the chemistry. All those. We understand that. But on top of the general education requirements, why should I take an additional class that has nothing to do with my degree? So that's the nice thing is, and again, I tell students and I advise students, do your research, look at your, um, your degree plan. And if your degree plan says, hey, I need 18 more classes to finish my bachelor's in marketing or whatever the case may be. Make sure that you stay on top of that and make sure that the educational facility that you're in, whether it be a nonprofit or nonprofit, profit or nonprofit, make sure that they're staying on track with that 18 classes or 20 classes and not all of a sudden adding, uh, you know, all of a sudden now you got to take a, I had a young lady who told me from one of the universities locally that she had to take a LinkedIn class. And, and I don't get me wrong, I am a, oh, no. I, I like LinkedIn. I, I use it every day. But why would I have to take a LinkedIn class? Pay for, tuition and sit in class and exactly. do homework on how to use a and, social and network. And I was blown away when she told me that. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And unfortunately, I hate to use this word, but they suckered her for another three credits at about $1,000. Yep. When she can sit right home and learn LinkedIn, you know. <laughs> so it's a, now, Diane, we had talked a little bit earlier about the difficulty of discharging student loans in bankruptcy right. and how the answer is generally no. Yeah. <laughs> With minor Don't caveats. assume it always is, but yes, generally no. <laughs> so are there circumstances where, where a loan can expire, where a student loan may not be valid anymore, a statute of limitations? Okay. And, and then the second part of that question is, what if you don't pay? What what can happen if you don't pay your student loans? And how is that different 
from other types of debts. Okay. And you know I'm setting you up there with yeah, pretty loaded yeah, questions. Yeah, you, you are. So you're going to have to make sure I cover all these. Uh, so let's start first with statute of limitations. What that basically says is that creditors have a responsibility to move forward in a reasonable way in collecting debts or a reasonable time in collecting debts. So every state in the United States has a different set of limits on how long a creditor can wait before uh, that debt actually expires. Now, it doesn't mean the debt goes away. It's still hanging out on your credit report, et cetera, but they may not have the legal authority to pursue it. And uh, so student loans, we break them again into two parts, federal student loans and private student loans. Federal student loans, that's an easy answer. No statute of limitations. They expire when you expire. They do. Well, sometimes, yeah. No, they do. I'm being (laughs) facetious there. I actually have an article on my uh, blog article that talks about do student loans die with you. Um, And uh, so anyway, so federal, no. If you've got a federal loan, you better work something out. Uh, As far as private, though, that's a different animal. And again, each state has a different statute of limitations. Arizona is six years. Now, that's six years from the last payment of that student loan. What the student loan collectors will try and do is convince you to pay so much as a dollar, just a good faith dollar. You restarted (laughs) the six years all over again by doing that. Other states have provisions that just by acknowledging you have the debt— You've started the statute of limitations over again. There's also issues about leaving the, uh, leaving the country, et cetera. So just know that if you have a private loan, statute of limitations might be something you need to investigate. What can they do with those loans when they're in default? Again, I'm going to split it into federal and state or federal and private. The federal, they can garnish wages without suing you. Uh, They can uh, garnish Social Security, again, with no notice. And now both of those things, the ability to garnish your wages without a lawsuit and the ability to garnish your Social Security – that is very different than virtually every other kind of debt. That's exactly right. Absolutely. Because at least with your medical bills, your credit cards, you get a forewarning that these guys are really really, uh, certain that they want to get paid. They're, They're uh, so they're suing you. And they have to put some work in. They do have to put work in, but not so with uh, the, the the student loan side of it. Uh, so as far as, uh, let's see, what was your other question? Sorry. Uh, well, I think you've kind of covered most of it. Okay. And that oh, was... tax refunds. Sure, they they can seize refunds. your tax refunds right. too. Yes. Yes. Which is quite a surprise when you use that tax refund to just simply catch up on your debt the following year and poof, it's gone. Yes. Basically, if you owe money to the government for student loans, they will get it back from you. They will. If you ever have it, they can get it. They will. And it's never going to go away until you die. Yeah. Um, Are there any other categories of debt that are like that? Wow. Not that I know of. Even taxes. Even taxes can be discharged in bankruptcy. If they're more than three years old, there was no fraud. There's rules on this. But, you know, we can actually file bankruptcy and get rid of old taxes. So no, not not no student loans are very insidious when it comes to hanging on like a little demon underneath the <laughs> stairs waiting for you to yeah. walk down those stairs. Mm-hmm. Where do where do the two of you see this going uh, in the future? What what do you both think needs to change? And what do you think will change as we go forward in the next 10, 20, 30 years in this country? 
Bobby, I'll, I'll let you go first on this. Sure. One. Yeah. Um, you know, in the next 10, 20 years, unfortunately, I don't, I don't see this going away. I really don't. Um, somebody asked me recently, uh, do you think that all student debt should be forgiven? Well, to be quite honest with you, I, I don't know how it can be, yeah. um, especially if 90% of them are federal loans. You know, So if, yeah. if you're the federal government and you give me 100 bucks, and all of a sudden, you know, Diane says, well, you don't, you don't got to give them 100 bucks anymore. Well, somebody has to give you back $100. I, I don't know if there's a fix. I, I don't foresee it going away, if you will. Um, again, I, I go back to, you know, practice reasonable and prudent uh, borrowing. Don't, again, go back and borrow $50,000 when you don't need $50,000 and look for alternative ways to get your education, whether it be, again, like I said, uh, an employer who offers tuition reimbursement, for example, or just simply work your tail off, save a nest egg, and then go to school. Or, again, my favorite is the GI Bill, you know, the military. Mm -hmm. The military is a great way to get your get your education. They offer you the GI Bill. There's a slew of different opportunities. And so we tell people, you know, just look at your uh, where you're at in life and figure out, do I need to borrow all this money? So Now, some people in uh, have taken on jobs that they were told will, over time, after 10 years of being on that job, their loan will then be forgiven. It's called a public service. Well, just last year, it started hitting the fan because those 10 years has now expired. People are asking for them. There is a 99% failure rate for those applying for those forgiveness for many, many reasons. Some of them are just bad management some of them are that the employer didn't file the proper report or someone didn't check a right box. So all I can say right now is if you have a public, a, a public service student loan, you need to be on the phone. You need to be proactive on a regular basis in making sure all the proper things are checked and that you're in the right category, et cetera. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen with that, but it's just in the process of lawsuits and government oversight, et cetera, playing out. So I assume in five years we'll have an answer. That is going to be a very interesting issue, certainly. I would tend to think that with the problems we've seen in this first round of forgiveness applications, uh, that's going to discourage people from taking those public mm -hmm. sector jobs because it seemed to me that one of the strong benefits was that loan forgiveness. Right. It effectively increases the salary tremendously because those are not high-paying positions typically. Right. There is a, a significant sacrifice being made in monthly income, in salary, for people to take those jobs. And it was on the understanding that those loans would be forgiven. And now we're seeing that that carrot that was dangled years ago is being withdrawn at the last second. Right. Uh, that's a major trust issue, Truly. I would think. Um, much like the trust issue that, that people have um, – with for-profit universities and with higher education in general, not really receiving the benefits that they were tantalized with earlier right. on and that they saw people in earlier generations receiving. Right. Now, Diane, if someone graduates today from a professional school with $150,000 in student loan debt at a 7% interest rate, if they can't get employed in that professional field, do they realistically have any hope of paying that loan off? I mean, nope. where does that where does that leave them 
at, at the end of our lifetimes in 30, 40, 50 years. Okay, so what we're seeing happen to the millennials is that they can't afford to buy houses. Uh, they can't move into areas that have great schools uh, for their children. Uh, so we're seeing a complete switch in the societal norms for each of these generations. And so they can't live like mom and dad lived anymore. Um, as far as I went to law school, got a law degree, but now I can't get a job in the in the uh, in law. Uh, there are collateral areas. And in fact, a lot of my fellow students went to law school never intending to work in the law. Yes. They did it for other reasons, and that's wonderful. Which has been traditional in law for for a long time. Exactly. But often they're going into advanced business positions or family businesses may exactly. not have a need to work in a professional yeah. job. But for the most part, they, they go to medical school, they go to nursing school, they go to law school, then they can't find a job, and now they're flipping hamburgers, and there is no way on the face of this earth for the rest of their lives they'll ever be able to pay those debts, but they're going to be hounded mm -hmm. on a daily basis by the phone calls and put potential garnishment of wages and losing their tax refunds, et cetera. So until the government and, and laws come out of Congress, they're interpreted and applied by the courts, but they come out of Congress. So until Congress decides that there needs to be another way of dealing with this, and I agree with Bobby, there's no way I, I would support forgiving all student loans. Doing something with the most egregious ones, we have to. Mm -hmm. uh, but Congress is the one that's going to have to step up on this. If you could craft a solution to that, you know, without going through every detail, what would you do? Make some loans dischargeable under some circumstances? First, you got to start with education. So you got to start with both the schools and the students and the parents making sure that people aren't taking out loans they can't afford. Right. So that starts the beginning of that. As far as once they've actually done it and now they're in a situation of trying to live, then I, I think, yes, we need to modify the bankruptcy laws so that they do provide that once you step through certain stages that we can use bankruptcy to get rid of it. And those laws need to be more uniform rather than New York saying yes and California saying mm -hmm. no. Bobby, what do you think from the higher education side? Are there workable solutions that can preserve institutions of higher education and also preserve the finances of individual Americans? Without a doubt. I, I think, you know, and again, it goes back to um, responsible borrowing. But like Diana's saying, I think that there's certain individuals, certain schools we had mentioned earlier, there have been some educational institutions that have come up and for whatever reason, they, they, um, they go away. So now you have a student holding the bag for $20,000. Is it the student's fault? Not necessarily. You know, did they might have gone and made, uh, made a poor decision to attend that university or that school? Could be. But if they go there on good faith and all of a sudden now the school lost their certification, lost their accreditation, and now these students are lost, you know, left holding yes. a lot of money. I think that's an issue. I've had the privilege of dealing with students that are a little bit older and and, 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 and along in their lives in their 40s and 50s. Um, and there's uh, one uh, person in particular who comes to mind who is disabled um, and cannot work any longer but still has a lot of student debts. So I think that there's, there's certain criteria of people that we need to look at. Should it be carte blanche and we're just going to wipe, you know, uh, however many billion dollars you set away? I don't think it's possible. But I do think that there are certain individuals – certain criteria that we could possibly do that. And again, 
It starts at the beginning. When an individual wants to go to school, we need to tell them, practice responsible borrowing. Don't go and blow a bunch of money and focus on your education. Don't take a whole bunch of classes that are not important and graduate. And sometimes the best advice is don't go to school right now. Get out there, get wet, Mm -hmm. try things, figure out what your love, your passion is, then come back and come to school. Like Bobby, I I didn't go even start my college degree until 27. So I kind of knew what I wanted when I came out. Uh, Now, it wasn't pleasant for my parents and not (laughs) having their daughter go to college straight out of high school. But truthfully, I'm a better person for what I did. I think there's a lot to be said for those non-traditional paths and even for some of the older traditional paths of trade schools and learning on the job. Um, I'm a big fan of Mike Rowe and his activism for uh, learning a trade and getting out there, which uh, some people have said is ironic for me because I am an attorney and I went straight through. But I had a prior career in construction management. And although that was my undergraduate degree and, and I was there in a professional capacity, I had great respect for the people on the job sites who never went to school. Many of them were dropouts from from high school and and even at younger ages. And they learned on the job and in trade schools, they learned how to make money. And many of them made more money than I did Mm -hmm. as a professional project manager. Um, Working hard in this country and producing something with your hands is a viable route to financial independence. And that's something that I think many in the last generation, perhaps, or even just over the last 30 years, have discounted. There's been a lot of emphasis on the necessity of higher education when perhaps the emphasis should be on practical education. Right. It may be higher, it may not be higher, but it's practical. Right. And it achieves a result that's useful in your own life. Mm-hmm. Um, Completely. Bobby, what do you see in your experience at, at the university? What do you see the most financially valuable degrees being right now? What uh, degrees can people get that will get them a job with the highest return on that investment in education? You know, I'm thinking uh, just in the Tempe area right now, we're looking at business degrees and we offer an MBA. We offer a master's in business. We also offer a criminal justice degree. So a lot of the individuals that I'm talking to right now are are, uh, active duty officers right now. And they're at the point where they might be a sergeant, for example, with one of the local police agencies and they want to become a lieutenant or they want to become a captain. So they want to knock out that criminal justice degree. To move up. It all depends on their career field, if if that makes sense. There's not Absolutely. one in particular, but it all depends on where they're at in life and what job they're in now. And Bobby, if somebody wants to get in touch with you or your university, who should they contact? What's their first point of contact? Yes, to start their uh, if you want to get a hold of me, my name is Bobby Zavala. I can be reached at 602-758-4363. And my email is rzavala, Z-A-V-A-L-A, at dbq.edu. Great. And Diane, for any of our listeners who may have personal financial concerns and want to get in touch with you, uh, how can they do that? Well, the first portal is probably my website. So it's dianedrain.com. I kept it really simple. Diane is D-I-A-N-E, drain, D-R-A-I-N.com. If you want to call the office, 602-246-7106. Thank you both for being here so much, and thank you to the AZ Credit Law Group. Uh, You can find them on the internet at www.azclg.com. 
for all of your personal financial legal concerns. Thank you very much for listening to Legitimate, Legitimately Yours. Mm-hmm.